Welcome to My Name is Not Steve, the podcast by storytellers about storytelling with people not named Steve. Hey, this is Pete Bauer. And I'm Dorothea Bauer. And this is My Name is Not Steve. We are still not named Steve. Nope, we're storytellers that talk about storytelling, which is a pretty good combination, I think. It'd be weird if we talked about like fishing, because <laughs> I don't fish. I could talk about fishing. I've never been fishing and I don't like it, but it's just boring to me. Like the whole idea of sitting on a boat and waiting for a fish to bite a piece of string is just like. (laughs) Wow. You're diminishing a lot of people's enjoyment. Well, a lot of people think stories are boring, so. Well, they're stupid. There we go. Everybody's allowed to have their own tastes and preferences. Yeah, and some of them are wrong. Exactly. So, you know, that's like people used to say, um. Like I'd sit at a piano and they go, can you play the piano? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and then I'd just start banging on it. And I'd be like, I thought you could play the piano. I'm like, well, not well. I mean, it's kind of like I'm you're capable. Fish. Yeah, I mean, watch. <laughs> this is what's happening right this second. So, yeah, What do you think I'm doing? <laughs> so you could talk about fishing even though you have no practical experience. Yeah. Well, we have a little practical experience about storytelling, so that's kind of nice. Just a smidge, though. Just a smidge. Not anything to be worthy of anything that they should listen to. <laughs> so turn us off. Here we go. Just, let's, let's go to the next one. All right, Dorothea, uh, let's see. Let's do a quick update. So I'm going to have some surgery. I'd mentioned before, I'm going to have it in the next couple of weeks. So we are actually going to record over the next two weeks, four episodes. And since we release them every other week, that should give me eight weeks to recover. So we're going to do two today and then two next Saturday. So that's kind of cool. But, you know, if people get impatient, you know, they're just terrible people, really. <laughs> I mean, how dare they expect Look, anything from you when you're recovering from surgery? Who do you think you are? <laughs> Here's The sad truth is I don't think... Anyone who actually listens to the show is going to be eager to listen to the next one. That's not true. No, it is true. No, I know the people who listen to the show. Well, they're personally. Obvi- they're obviously <laughs> medicated or delusional. Don't insult our target audience. <laughs> the, de- the medicated and delusional. <laughs> no, we're very happy for all three of our fans. Anyway, so today we're going to talk about music and how it affects storytelling, storytelling through music and things like that. But first, uh, like I said, a quick update. In preparation for my surgery, I am trying to get the third novel done, Sins and Suicide. And so that should be done this weekend, actually, that I can, well, done to the point that I send it to beta readers. And then I would like for them to get back to me before I go into surgery so I can make whatever corrections and then send it to the editor before I uh, go under the knife. So that's kind of the plan. And the cool thing is that I got my second novel, Proof Paperback. Been very happy about that. It's just kind of cool. It looks awesome. And now talk about that a little bit, because um, in the digital form, the book covers, I think the first book cover looks looks better, I think, or more powerful or whatever. But the second book cover in print and paperback is looks better. Yeah, well, I think it's partly because when you view things online on a computer LCD screen, it just is different than when you view things in print because you have that light shining behind the object you're viewing. Right. So... We didn't really realize until we had the second book that there are a lot of similar colors in the first book cover that you get to see all the different layers of on an LCD screen because you, again, have that light shining through. Right. But on print, it doesn't shine through as well. It's still a really awesome book cover, but it doesn't stand out, all those little pieces. Whereas with the second book cover, there's a little bit more variety in the color palette, and so that makes it pop. And also red. Uh, there's a lot more red and white 
Yeah, and that's what I was going to say. There's red um, is the primary color in the second book cover, so it's more saturated, I think, in the print version. The Gabby Wells thriller heading and then my name are in white as opposed to a, a yellowish for the first book, so they pop more. So mm -hmm. it's just interesting. I, I, I was surprised by that, actually. But the cool thing is holding a book in your hand that you actually wrote. That's so cool. That'll never, I don't think, ever get old, honestly, because it's kind of like when you write, especially today, so many things are virtual and digital, and ebook is just a whole bunch of ones and zeros put together in, in the form of a book. So it's kind of just cool to have the tactile sort of experience of opening a book and seeing the words and everything. But it's you've always really been cool. a fan of tangible accomplishments. Well, that's true. I, I mean, I'm the older I get, the more I fill my office with older things that, <laughs> that are cool and work, like typewriters and fans and radios and things like that. But I remember growing up too, and we would drive by bridges and you'd be like, people made that. Yeah. They constructed it. And when they drive by, they can look at it and say, I made that. And you thought that was the coolest thing. Yeah. And that's probably because most of my professional life I've been working in IT. So a lot of that is just, it's on a server somewhere. It's not something printed out. It's not, I mean, people use it, but you know what I mean? It's just different. Anyway, so it was cool. Really cool to get the book. Um, I have to approve that proof. I'm not going to make it available for sale though until we get all the four books done. So so it's kind of like a little teaser to put it out there. And, but I was just so excited I couldn't help it, honestly. <laughs> so <laughs> it's kind of funny. Uh, we need to come up with a plan for you to follow because you do a lot of things because you just get excited that really are not on schedule. <laughs> I know. Well, actually, no, this is part of a plan. I'll be honest with you. We want to generate as much interest before we make the books available as possible. So if in the next couple of months, now the fourth book is going to be delayed writing because of my surgery, which kind of stinks because I wanted to get it done. The surgery came up two weeks earlier than we thought. So um, it's just not going to happen to write the fourth book before I go under the knife. So the point is, is that I, I, I kind of wanted to, if we could release the pictures of the covers with the proof books every couple of months, I think that'll generate hopefully a little more interest before we actually make them for sale, honestly, because we'll still come up with a marketing plan. But what's interesting, too, is that just seeing the books, both books side by side, I totally get that it's much easier to buy into a book series, well, a book when it's a series. When you see it like, oh, the story goes on. And so when you're going to see four novels there to start, you know, you're going to say, oh, if I enjoy it, I have three more. And I, and I totally got in my brain. I understood it, but I finally, you know, it clicked in my brain how that makes it the buying decision that much more easier because if they enjoy it, they have the opportunity to pursue it further. So that's kind of cool. To continue to live in the world. Yep. The sad world that I create for Gabby. In a world. <laughs> Actually, Gabby's world's not sad, I don't think. No, just her life. <laughs> <laughs> her life is not sad. Her life is challenging. She's doing what the Lord wants her to do. And oftentimes that includes... A lot of struggle, but that's only to make us closer. Anyway, so that's kind of the update there. I'm excited about that, and like I said, hope to get the third book done before my surgery, or at least to my editor before my surgery. So that's cool. So today we're talking about music. Interesting. Yes, because a listener of ours sent in a request. What? I know. All right, there's two things wrong with that statement. <laughs> a listener of ours. Uh-huh. And they actually sent in a request. Yeah. So this listener, supposed listener, mm -hmm. air quotes, they actually invested energy and time to open up an email program, write a thought down, share it with us, mail it to us. What? 
I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> Except doing a show. Hey. Well, they're getting what they want, so. <laughs> well, that's there. Well, <laughs> buttons for punishment. So who is this Uber fan? This Uber fan is named Barbie. Barbie. She's lovely. She's a sweetheart. She is. She's like so bubbly and happy. She is. She's like the Auntie Gabby. <laughs> she's the anti of her husband, too. Her husband is very serious. Yeah. And she's very bubbly. And it's so funny to see them together because they're, they're a good couple and they love each other so much, but they're such opposites. And that seems to be the way it works, you know? <laughs> yeah. So Barbie said that we talked about Van Halen on one of our episodes. So she wanted us to talk about storytelling in music. Mm. So since we've done a lot of shows about, you know, TV shows and film and stuff like that, she wanted to get our take on storytelling in music. And since we're storytellers that talk about storytelling, I guess we have to. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Well, I've always been a very big fan of music. However, most of the music that I've been a big fan of has lacked lyrics. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm a big fan of soundtracks and orchestral performances. I think they're so beautiful. And I love the way instruments can convey emotion and tell a story just with music without any kind of other explanation necessary. I think that's incredible. Yeah, I've always been a really big fan of soundtracks as well. I started writing my first stories, listening to soundtracks and being inspired by by what they clicked off in my imagination. But the funny thing is, is since I started writing novels and, you know, having been involved in film for so long, now that I started writing novels and I see a really powerful scene in a movie or TV, that's almost always because of the music. I'm like, <laughs> cheater. They're cheating. I can't do that in a novel. That's not fair. I'd have to write a thousand words just for them to get a look and go, you know, and the music rises. And you're like, aw. Well, yeah. it was funny because I remember when you would drive me to high school growing up and... Um, <laughs> And there was this one turn onto the interstate, which was covered in bushes, and yeah. then the bushes ended, and a factory or some kind of plant was revealed. And it was always obscenely early in the morning when we were driving. Yeah, and always we'd be foggy listening, and stuff. be foggy, and we were listening to the score from The Rock. Oh yeah, that's right. I would always look at the window and just wait for the bushes, and I'd put my hands up like I was a film director <laughs> and just wait for the bushes to end and for the factory to be revealed. Yeah. It and it was so, so cool. cool. Yeah, although. I have to say, my favorite driving slash movie score experience oh, yes. <laughs> was one day we were driving and we were on this bridge that was a little bumpy. Yeah. And we were listening to the score for Superman Returns, I believe. And the bumps on the road <laughs> were perfectly in sync with the beat of the music. And, and <laughs> when the beat changed, the bumps on the road stopped. I mean, you can't plan that. No, I'm, honestly, you can't. <laughs> it was the greatest <laughs> moment ever. I don't think that's true. When, of all the moments in the world. In that the, was it. That was it? Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. So when I was growing up, the band that we liked, other than Van Halen, was Styx. And what's really interesting about that <laughs> is that if you listen to Styx now, they're horrendous. Like, Except it, for one song, which is very special. Well, that, that's true. <laughs> but for the most part, Styx didn't translate well. You know how, like in movies, we always say, we, we always wanted to make movies that were you know, had the five-year cycle. Like, it could last five years and still be good, you know? Yeah, you were very particular about not including technology in your movies as much as possible. Yeah, because I didn't want it to be dated. So, Styx doesn't do that. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing to me how much I loved their music, and I listen to it now, and I cringe going, ugh. It's just <laughs> not. I mean, there's some stuff which is good, but overall, it, 
it wasn't. But one of the things that they did, and they weren't the only band to do this, but one of the things that they did is near the end of their existence, they started to do concept albums. One of their last albums was called Paradise Theater. They were from Chicago. The band was from Chicago. And there was a Paradise Theater in Chicago. And so they kind of made a concept album based on that. So some of their songs, not all of them, but a lot of their songs kind of were tied to that theater. It was kind of cool in the sense that it's kind of like the difference between having a compilation of short stories and then one novel, right? So these these concept albums allowed you to kind of exist in that world for most of or the entirety of the album because you could imagine they're all in this paradise theater or revolving around the idea of this paradise theater. And what was really cool, and, and this is really specific to the time that, that it occurred, is we used to have really big album covers, you know? So there's a lot of good artwork on there. So on one side of the album was the Paradise Theater in its heyday, and then the other side of the album was the Paradise Theater after it had closed and near, near demolition. It was kind of cool. So as you're listening to the songs, you know, you could, you know, you didn't have the internet or anything else. So you're sitting there and you're looking at the album cover and you're kind of imagining this thing. They did another album called Kilroy Was Here. And it was kind of weird. And Dennis DeYoung was one of the lead singers and he was the guy who kind of pushed these concepts. He's, he was much more theatrical than rock, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. He usually wrote most of their ballads, which were very popular on the radio. But he was the one that kind of pushed these concepts. And Kilroy was here was was interesting. It was kind of, this is back in the 80s, when you had a lot of conservative groups reacting to a lot of the the satanic imagery that was very popular in heavy metal, right? It was, it was a, kind of like a public acceptance of Satanism, which offended a lot of people. So there's a really big pushback. And so obviously... The conservative side took that to the extreme and said, we have to shut down everything or, or edit everything or censor everything. And then the liberal side said, well, that will just end up in fascism and tyranny. So it's the standard play is they both went to extremes. So the Kilroy was here kind of thing is, is a future, kind of like a dystopian future, a fascist future. This is also back in the 80s when Japan was, was really a powerful economic force in the world. They had, you know, the rolled out Toyotas and Hondas. And their economy grew and they became very powerful in the economic world. And then it ended up, they ended up having like inflation issues and whatever. And they've, they've diminished a lot since then. But everyone thought like Japan, kind of like we think now China could take over the world. If they were Christian and capitalist, they would take over the world in one generation. Well, everyone thought Japan would take over the world economically. So this was kind of like a Japanese sort of fascist future, not like World War II Japanese. It's just that the Japanese influence was integrated into society. So Kilroy, there were robots that would help people. And so Kilroy was a revolutionary against the fascist. So anyway, they had a lot of songs around that too. Um, A lot of the guys in the band weren't fans of this sort of concept stuff because they were just rock and roll guys. And they wanted to sing about, you know, beer and drinking and girls and rocking and having fun. And, you know, they're talking about now robots and stuff. But the theater experience, when you're at the concert, it was pretty cool. I mean, because it was not just a concert. It was a concert and a movie and a play all at the same time. So it was also immersive in storytelling. Other bands did this too, like Queen. They did an album, A Night at the Opera, and it had... They were very operatic sounding, and that had Bohemian Rhapsody. The Who did stuff like um, with Pinball Wizard and things like this. So it's kind of an interesting way to express stories through music. And it's not common, but it does come up every once in a while, you know? I think Taylor Swift kind of did that a little bit too, right? It's not really a concept album. 1989 is the year Taylor Swift was born. So she was rebranding her music. She was going from being a country singer to a pop 
singer. Oh, okay. And it also has a very retro feel. A lot of her songs right, do. Right, that's, that's what I thought. So... 1989 was really about I'm rebranding my music and the interesting thing is that Taylor Swift is a genius and I read an interview with her and the record company was like well you know you should if you're rebranding you should name it Taylor Swift you know right now this is the new me and she's like yeah I'm not gonna do that <laughs> she has been, you know there's some people gifted with just knowing I don't know she has an insane insight into knowing her fans and the business even from as a teenager and it's amazing that almost all of her instincts have been correct when, when it comes to her career. The last three albums that she put out, I'm very impressed with her business savvy when it comes to music because the first one she did that I'm thinking of is Speak Now. And that album she wrote entirely by herself, which is a really big deal because very few musicians write their own music, at least not entirely. They'll contribute, but they don't write it all by themselves. So Speak Now was the first album that she wrote entirely by herself. So that was a big deal, and that was the publicity for that. The album she had following that was Red, and on that album, because she had just come off of Speak Now, every single song she collaborated with another musician that she loved. And that's what that was about. That's just like playing, though, isn't it? You know, like you reach a level and you're like, Oh, you know who I'd like to work with? It's kind of like going, hey, Steven Spielberg, I want to make a short movie with you. And David Fincher, I want to make a short movie with you. You know what I mean? It's kind of like And that's like exactly that. what she did. And following that, she now has 1989 out, which is a complete rebranding of her music. Um, and it's also a fantastic album. Yeah, I've heard that too. But the other thing that amazes me about Taylor Swift is that she always took time to make her concerts events. That's one of the reasons I honestly believe they're sold out all the time is because when you go, it's not just about hearing her music because she grew a lot as a performer. She wasn't great when she started out and now she's growing. And Yeah, there was some criticism about that early on, right? That yeah. her albums were better than her live stuff. But her concerts are shows. They've got fireworks. They've got costume changes. They've got actors and dancers and it's a really big deal um she's actually here in tampa tonight yeah right and this she is her last show tonight. on yeah. this tour yeah so really big deal on halloween night and uh i'm sure it'll be an absolutely amazing show yeah well and what's interesting about her too is that successful people always look at what they struggle with and work really hard to improve themselves she always had an inherent gift obviously at, at lyrics and writing songs because she did that so successfully as a young person, but she was weak in the live performance stuff. And so she's now like made that one of her best things. And also, if you're going to charge insane amount of money to go to a concert, it better be worth it. But it, it just goes to show you that some people, they reach a level and they, they have no interest in improving themselves. And she, like all the other really successful people, whether it's actors, whether it's athletes, the really successful ones are always looking for ways to improve themselves and always learning uh, the next thing and, and surrounding themselves with people that can help them reach that next level. And I do think Taylor Swift is such a great example because she is a natural born storyteller. All of her songs are stories. A lot of them are about love, but some of her songs are about romance, but a lot of her songs are just about life and being a young woman in this world today. And that's why I think people identify with her music so profoundly. My favorite song on her new album is called New Romantics because every lyric I hear in that song, I'm just like, yes, this is totally the voice of the new generation. Well, I think that fits her overall success model is that she is authentic in everything she does, whether it's writing, performing or interacting with her fans. It's like you get the same person, you know, people like to be entertained, right? So you'll put up with stuff as long as it's entertaining. You know, it's like athletes. 
the guy may be a total a-hole in real life, but if he is a really good athlete, he'll stay on a team. People don't mind that. But they're really drawn to people at that level who are also authentic. Because then you connect to them not only on an entertainment level, but like on an emotional sort of everyday level. So it becomes much more personal. That's why Jennifer Lawrence was initially such a force in Hollywood, because... She didn't have any kind of filter, and she was just as crazy as everybody else, but she owned that, and she was also gorgeous and an Oscar-winning actress. Yeah. So the amazing thing about her trajectory was that you could identify with her being like, oh, she's just like me, but at the same time, she's infinitely better than me. <laughs> yeah, but, and you don't mind it because <laughs> she seems like... It. Because she doesn't seem to think she's infinitely better. Well, very few people are awkward in a cute way. Most people are just awkward in a way that it's awkward. <laughs> yeah, so- uncomfortably awkward, yeah. <laughs> So when you see people who are awkward in a cute way, it's just, it's nice because you identify with it, but it's also something to aspire to. Well, I think that's because she owns it. You know, it's like most people, when they're awkward, they don't want to be awkward, right? And then when they are awkward, they're awkward about the awkward moment and then everyone else feels bad for them. But people who are awkward and they own it, it's kind of charming because you're like, it's kind of like you when you run into things because you're kind of a klutz. I guess that's true because being a klutz doesn't bother me at all. I hate being on camera, though, which I know is surprising because I wanted to be an actress at yeah. one point, but I do hate being on camera. <laughs> the last job that I had, I'm still I was... trying to figure you out, by the way, because <laughs> you make no sense to me. I was a multimedia coordinator and uh, my boss, he and I would take pictures of events at our company and, you know, make videos and all that other stuff. And and so he would always try to get pictures of me because he knew how much I hated it. Nice. Which didn't work out well for him because I managed all the assets. So I just deleted them. <laughs> That's like if your mother owned my phone. You know what I yeah. mean? She would scan through and go, nope, I don't like that picture of me. Delete. Whether I liked it or not, I deleted all of them. I was making a point. And If um, it's not for your voice <laughs> on this podcast, history will never know you existed. That's true. But the funny thing about that is, is that when I left that position, I asked him, I was like, so does this mean, because I still work for the company, I just am in a different position. And I asked my boss, I said, so does this mean that you're going to get pictures of me now that I have no control over what happens to them? And he's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're going down. Back to music a little bit. I wanted to talk about the soundtrack aspect a little more because it's amazing to me how composers. Well, let me just put it this way. I'm amazed at artists like just yesterday we were looking at some artists who took the the Disney villains and heroes and actually painted them to make them look like real people. And it's incredible because oh it's exactly as you would imagine yeah. them. They and, don't look like actors because a lot of times I'll see artists when they're making fan art, they'll go, oh, this actor kind of looks like this character. Right. I'll draw them in that costume. Right. But this artist just took the characters and made them real. Yeah, and we'll, we'll put it in the show notes. It's but so cool. It is amazing. It really is amazing. It's so cool. And I look at that going, man, I just, I wish I had that sort of talent, you know, to see the, to be able to take something in my head and put it, well, I was going to say put it on paper. I do that in a, in a novel, but that's not <laughs> the same. Visually. Visually, yeah, yeah. Because there's so many times I'll have an idea for like a sketch, but I'm not talented enough to make that happen. So I'm like, man, that's so cool in my head. And that's where it'll stay. <laughs> that's where it's going to stay. <laughs> Yeah, I um, and when I listen to composers, uh, you know, because it's a very specific talent to that. There's rules to filmmaking and there's rules to films, and the collaboration with the director is important. And when music comes in and when it should be silent is really important. So there's all these there's a structure to soundtracks, but then the composers can fill that with whatever talent they have, and some of them are just insane. And what's even more amazing is some of them make awesome soundtracks to horrendous movies. 
Yeah, like King Solomon's Mines. King Solomon's Mines, Jerry Goldsmith, or... Man of Steel. Man of Steel. I was thinking more of The Last Airbender. Oh, such a good soundtrack. It's one of the most amazing soundtracks. I listen to it all the time. Amazing television show. Awful movie. So bad. Scary awful. It's like, offensive. It, it's, the it's... first words <laughs> that were spoken on screen... I laughed and we're I said we pitiful. were pitiful. Yeah, I said, I, "All right, this is not good." This is oh gosh! Yeah. I how did he make the sixth sense and signs? How is he responsible? Right, we're, we're, we're talking about music. For... Let's go back. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not sidetrack. But the point is, Ugh. is that James Newton Howard took that steaming pile of crap and made an amazing soundtrack. And I'm and I'm wondering, from a composer standpoint, do they have in their head when they're trying to? think of lyrical or musical scores in their brain, the stories that they want to tell through their the notes and so forth. Do they have that in their brain? Like, if I ever get a movie like this, I'm going to use this. Like, do they have these sketched out? Because I can't imagine that movie inspired that soundtrack. Unless he watched it and was like, man, I got to do something. <laughs> <laughs> They're paying wow. nine bucks per ticket. <laughs> got to give them something. Get, at least I'll make money off of this. No, I mean, it's, it really is amazing. And then, of course, the greatest is John Williams. I mean, he's remarkable. He's just, well, we talked about this on the previous podcast, but when we went to the Florida Orchestra where they played all of his biggest hits. I didn't realize until the conductor mentioned that John Williams is probably the greatest marching composer since John Philip Sousa. And if you listen to so many of his songs, like the Imperial March or Raiders of the Lost Ark, they're very much military marches, you know, that are just insanely memorable. So soundtracks to me, when I'm writing, depending on what I'm writing, I have playlists in my iTunes. So I have my action playlist. I have my relaxing playlist. I have my Matt Marr playlist, you know. Depending on what I'm writing, I'll I'll play that in the background. And I can only listen to Matt Marr when I'm editing something I've already written because I'm trying to think of words and he's singing words. Mm -hmm. But if I've already written it and I'm just editing, then his words I can listen to and it won't interfere with really what I'm trying to do. You know, I was at a sales pitch for essential oils. And one of the interesting things that they said in that presentation was when your body responds to a smell it makes an emotional connection before it makes a rational connection. Hmm. So when you think of prominent smells in your life, you always think of the emotion affiliated with it before you think of anything else. Like when you think of how the house smells around Christmas time, right. it's an emotional connection. Yeah, when it's you one think of the about, most prominent triggers in memories is smell, right? When you think about how your grandfather used to smell or all that, it's always emotional. And Hopefully I wonder... Hopefully that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, his cologne is what I'm thinking of. <laughs> what did DJ say? about being growing older my uncle said (laughs) as you get older three things will happen first you will hear your dad i'm not paying to air condition the outside second you'll see your dad in the mirror and the third and worst is you'll smell your dad (laughs) in the bathroom yeah so yeah that's one memory i don't want to revisit yeah but in this particular case i'm talking about aftershave ah yes And that is an emotional connection. And I wonder if on some level music is similar to that, because a lot of times when people connect to music, it's very emotional. So I'm I'm wondering if when you hear music, if the first thing that happens is you respond emotionally before you do rationally. Yeah, I agree, because I think one of the things, well, one of the things that I'm always really interested in are the things that the human species always do that we've elevated through our creativity. And what I guess I mean by that is, you know, everything we do is a story. Everybody is a storyteller at all times, right? 
everything. Even if you're writing code, you're telling a story because someone's going to use that. And that's a story. And everything is a story. Your life is a story. Right. So we are, as a species, storytellers. We love to listen to them and we love to tell them because that's who we are. And one thing that always interests me from a science fiction point of view, it would be so interesting to meet a civilization where storytelling wasn't important, where history mattered not at all, right? Because one of the reasons we love history, besides repeating it, is the fact that we <laughs> Actually, love the Actually, if stories. we loved history, we wouldn't repeat it. <laughs> right, but we love the stories. We love the stories of heroism, of cowardice, Benedict Arnold, you know, George Washington. We love all these stories, right? So that's an inherent nature, an inherent part of our human species. And the other thing is music. We sing as a species. So I always get a kick out of how, like it shouldn't surprise us that we love novels and movies and that because it's storytelling and that's part of our species. It shouldn't surprise us that we love music or dancing because that's also an inherent part of our species. Well, and I love, too, I think it's so cool how you see people among different cultures will react to things emotionally in very similar ways. Right. Like when they smile, it's an indication of happiness. Or when we're excited, we raise our arms in yeah, the air. Yeah, we raise our arms straight up. I, Everybody does this in the world. It's not cultural. It's just funny to me. I saw a video during the World Cup finals where I believe it was taking place in Brazil, but it was these two friends who were helping the friend of theirs who was blind and deaf watch the game so they had a tactile field on a table and then the other friend was moving their hand on the field while someone else was signing into his back what was happening on the screen that's really cool so he could those are really good friends by the way right so he could watch the game which was so cool but the amazing thing to me about watching this was that when there was a bad play he shook his head and when he got excited he raised his arms in the air and i'm like he has never seen or heard either one of those things right so right. that has to just be innately part of who we are right and i love that sort of stuff so anyway when, when you talk about music elevating or or anything like that it's it's like of course it does because we always sing and especially you know like you have friends from africa the africa they're so musically ingrained like it's ingrained in their culture and they're like almost like in their dna you know and they the way they love to dance and stuff it's just amazing to me Apparently, my DNA didn't, didn't didn't like to dance that much. Like, hereditarily, I didn't know. Apparently, the, the, the Germans and the Irish didn't like to dance a lot. The Irish have a very famous dance. All right, well, my... <laughs> all right, so I guess my relatives from past history were not good dancers because that was not passed on to me. Well, you know, it's interesting, though, because if you look at the societies that emigrated to all these different lands and explored the world... English dancing is very rigid. It's very... English. In a line. It's very... <laughs> yeah. In a line, you do your steps, you do all this other stuff. It's not free and, and emotional like right. salsa dancing is. Yeah. And I think that's just kind of where... I think that's just kind of where when that's passed down, it's very like you have to know the steps. Whereas, you know, Barbie, for example, I believe she's Puerto Rican and her family, they just dance. Right. She said something very interesting to me, though, one day when uh, she was dancing in the middle of a festival and now I was not. And because you're my child. <laughs> <laughs> and she was just dancing by herself and she looked amazing. And she said, well, you know, there's something interesting about Americans. And I'm like, OK, Barbie, you are an American, but whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> and she said, Americans always act like someone else is watching them. Mm, that's really true. 
And that is really true. She's like, at her family's parties, everyone's dancing. So no one's really concerned with what anyone else is doing. Right. Yeah. The Latin cultures are very musical and very, they dance a lot, African cultures too. And, and the Europeans, you're right, generally. And they, these are, all, of course, generalizations. Stereotypes. We're promoting them unintentionally. <laughs> but here we go. Here we go. But generally, you know, you're right. They're much more rigid and um, structured and so forth, not free-flowing or, or emotional or whatever. So that is really interesting. Anyway, so music is is one of the ways that we tell and receive stories just like anything else. Whether that's a whole album of songs that are put together in some sort of concept album, or if it's a single song that happens to touch, you know, what's going on in your life. I always love it because it's so true. If you ever break up with somebody, the radio only seems to be playing songs that match your sad emotional state. Or for some reason, you interpret every song to match your sad emotional state. But it is kind of funny. So what kind of personal experiences have you had with music other than your singing now, which is awesome? Mm. You, you're beautiful. You have a great voice. You got to cut that out. I mean, not singing, but the... Okay, I'll do it. <laughs> no. <laughs> cut out your opposition to to getting praise for it. So what kind of a musical experience have you had lately? Well, as I've mentioned already on this podcast today, I have always loved orchestral music. So I like listening to classical music. I like listening to movie scores. And I also like listening to, you know, modern songs, rock, rap, things like that. But I just have this connection in my soul to orchestral music. But the interesting thing is that when I'm at these concerts, someone I know was offering me free tickets to go see the Florida Orchestra. And I was like, yes, amazing. Who will come with me? So I asked a friend of mine, Ashley, if she wanted to come with me. And she was like, oh my gosh, yes, that would be amazing. She studied music in college. And going to that concert with her was so exciting because she would have her own moments of, oh, this is amazing. And oh, I love this song. Or she would just get excited. And it was cool to see someone else love it as much as I do. And there is something great about hearing an orchestra in person. It just has so much more depth and it kind of like envelops you. You know what I mean? Like you can feel the vibrations in your body. It's just really cool. And the human brain is amazing because when you look at certain instruments, they come out like they they come. You pull it out of the the mix. Exactly. It's incredible because you'll be listening to all of them at once and then you'll look over at the cello and be like, hmm. And then as you watch them play, that sound rises to the top. It's amazing how your brain can do that. Yeah. Well, let's see. For me, well, my first concert was Styx. Van Halen was a really cool concert. Journey was probably the best concert I ever went to. But my my favorite musical story is um, one of my nephews is Matt Smith, and he's also my one of my godchildren. Now, he was my first godchild, and I was really young. When, when that happened. How old were you? I was like in my early teens, I think. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I was I was honored and I and I loved it, but I really didn't understand the responsibility of that until much later in life because I just, I didn't know, right? I was too busy being a teenager. I didn't know anything. And you were an interesting teenager. I was a, I was a <laughs> moron. But anyway, so I always kind of felt bad about that, honestly, that... Uh, I didn't do more as a, I mean, I prayed for my godchildren. I, I always do, but I, I just felt I should have done more, you know? And also as more cultures married into our family, you know, from our brothers and sisters marrying different cultures, in some cultures, it was much more important, the role of the godparent than most of Americans treated. So anyway, I had a more of awareness to it. And one of the things I always regretted was that I wasn't a better godfather to Matt because I was just young, you know? Eh, he's fine. 
He is fine, but I'm just telling you, like, you know me, I always regret everything anyway, right? Yeah. So when I think back on stuff, it's like, ooh, what did I do wrong? And that was one thing. So a couple of years ago, I tried to actually try to start to make amends. And so I picked St. Joseph's feast day because he was the father of God, so to speak. So I picked that as a day that I would send uh, like a gift, a spiritual gift to my godchildren. And I did for a couple of years, but I never heard anything back. And it's not that I did it because I expected to, but I, I didn't hear good or bad. It, it was like a non-event. So I kind of stopped because I'm like, well, if that's not really making a difference, I don't want to keep doing that. I'll do try to figure out something else. So anyway, the point of that is that when Matt got married, we drove out to Arizona. One of his best friends, they roomed together, is Matt Marr. So Matt was going to be at the wedding too, Matt Marr. And so we get there early. You know, I got to say, Matt's wedding was a lot of fun, not just because he was my cousin getting married, but because he was working for Life Teen at the time. Right. And I participated in Life Teen programs. So getting to see like the actual people who I watched gives talks and whose music I loved, it was it was really awesome. Yeah, it was like a combination of a family event and like a Catholic Meet and uh, greet. celebrity <laughs> event at the same time. Yeah, like I went over and talked to Mark, Mark Hart and was like, thank you for everything you do. It's made such a difference in my life. And he's like, oh, of course, give me a hug. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah. It's just kind of funny. Anyway, so th- before Matt Smith was getting married, my brother Charles had said, have you ever heard of Matt Marr? And I didn't know that Matt and Matt knew each other. So he's like, have you ever heard of Matt Marr? And I'm like, no. And he's like, oh, he's an awesome Catholic Christian singer. You got to listen to him. So he made copies of these like three CDs that Matt had, Matt Marr had individually produced and distributed himself. So I listened to those. I'm like, man, these are amazing, amazing album. You know, we talk about... Matt Marr has the incredible ability to write music as if their prayer is coming from your own heart. Right. And it's just so amazing. So when I heard that he may be at this wedding, I'm like, well, you know, he was he was not known then, right, really, outside of the Catholic community. So, and having been, you know, worked in film and television and so on, I, I get that the starving artist thing. And I'm like, well, I have, I basically pirated inadvertently three of his CDs. So... I'm going to pay him. And so it's 15 bucks each. So I'm like, I'll, I'll give him 50 bucks. And we didn't have a lot of money. And this trip was costing a lot of money. But I told my wife, I said, I'm going to put 50 bucks in my wallet and because it's just to give to Matt Marr because he's an artist and he's earned it. So I kept it in my wallet the whole time. And so the night before the wedding, I think it was the night before the wedding, there was the bachelor party. And I was really honored because Matt Smith asked me to go, which was really cool. And Matt Marr actually was there. And we should just probably clarify, bachelor's parties in our family are not... Oh, yeah, no. Typical bachelor's parties. It's just kind of hanging out. It's hanging out, right. So Matt Matt Smith and all of his buddies, which included Matt Marr, got, got together at a bar and just hung out, right? Yeah. And so I knew Matt Marr was going to be there. I'm like, okay, good. This is where I'll give him his 50 bucks, you know? So I, I saw Matt and I said, hi, I'm, I'm Matt's uncle. And I just wanted to thank you for all your, for your work. I've You know, m- my brother gave me a copy of your music and I, I just wanted to pay you. I held the 50 bucks out. Now, Part of me thought that he'd go, well, you're Matt's uncle, keep the 50. But he's like, thank you, and just took it and put it in his pocket. And I was like, wow, that is such a starving artist. You know, I was like, damn straight I earned that. Give me my money. <laughs> it was just really cool. And then that night, um, there was a, like a guy playing, and then he took a break, and Matt's like, Matt Mars like, can I, can I sing here? And they're like, sure. And so he sat down and with a guitar and just started playing his own private concert for his best friend, you know. So it was really, really cool. A couple years later... Matt Marr was playing locally. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. And um, my sister, Matt Smith's mother, was down here. And so we were all going to go to the concert together. 
And I said, um, I said, my sister Mary, I said, Mary, are, do you think we'll be able to see Matt Marr after the show? And she's like, well, I mean, I've washed his underwear. We better. <laughs> I'm sure Matt will love you sharing that story. Yeah. So, I mean, because they, you know, they used to, when they were living together, they'd come to the house and Mary would do their laundry. So she's like, well, he better let me see him. <laughs> so we made signs. Remember, we made signs for Matt and stuff. And My favorite so. part was Matt's reaction because he's such a humble guy. Right. And um, the signs weren't, hey, we love Matt Marr. We were like, hey, we're Matt Smith's family. That's basically just, this is where we're located. Yeah, this is where we're located in the crowd. <laughs> that was the point of the signs. And so he started laughing while he was playing as soon as he saw him because he's like, so um, my friend's family's here. They're over there. <laughs> <laughs> And that was it. And that was it. What was funny also is that one of the things when, when Matt Marr moved out of Matt Smith's house that they were sharing, my sister Mary went to help clean up and there was some stuff left over in the music room, which is like picks that Matt used. So at the time we were shooting Nikki and Babs mm-hmm. and the co-star Tiffany was like insane psycho for Matt Marr, you know, just like insane. In love. Yeah, like- just like she would marry him literally the second after he said hi. Yeah. It was her birthday when we were shooting this, if I remember this correctly. And so we gave her a gift, and it was a guitar pick. And so she was just like, oh, that's nice. And we're like, no, that's that's Matt Marr's guitar pick. And she's like, oh, it just became like this thing, you know? It was just really funny. Anyway, so that, that was uh, my musical story. But like you said, Matt Marr's music is so... And my recommendation this week is his album, Saints and Sinners. It's so, so good. His music is just... As you said, it's like it, he's praying for you. Um, it's just coming out of your own soul. It's it's really amazing. But music is just another form of storytelling. It always has been. Sure. It's just sung. And it can be done with lyrics. It can be done with instruments. It's just incredible how it connects really to your soul and to your heart. And so that's why we listen to music, because sometimes the only way to convey what we're feeling is to listen to a song. You're right. It's the only way that it captures kind of what's going on. Nothing else does it right. So that's my recommendation, Dorothea. What about you? Oh, 1989. By Taylor Swift. By Taylor Swift. Yeah. All right. We'll put the links in the show notes. Now, as a devout Catholic, I have to say one of her songs takes the Lord's name in vain, like, a lot. Really? Yeah. That's surprising. But aside from that, it's a good album. Skip that one. All right. Cool. So there we go, Dorothea. Music. Music and storytelling. And we hope Barbie was happy. I hope so, too. Yeah, because we I want mean, her to be happy. And I know Andrew does, her husband. <laughs> <laughs> She'll just be like, no, you need to redo it. I want another one. <laughs> Unacceptable. So that's it, Dorothea. Next time, we're going to talk about authentic Catholic characters. Yo. Yep. What? That and, wasn't authentic. Cause and how do I know? Actually, is it authentic? Because I say yo a lot. Always yeah. sarcastically, but I do say it. Yeah. You're authentically... Sarcastic. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I was listening to an interview with an actress that I've recently become a fan of named Gina Rodriguez. She's on a show called Jane the Virgin. And she's so articulate and just well-mannered and respectful and optimistic. And I love listening to interviews with her because I look at her and I think, oh, she's a very classy person. And I really wish that I could be as classy as she is. But I think that part of it comes naturally to her. Part of it is training. Part of it you can always control. And then I just think, man, I'm just too sarcastic to make that work on a daily basis. Yeah. But I'd like to be classier than I am. (laughs) (laughs) What's our phrase? What's our phrase, our family phrase about our sarcasm? (laughs) We take the CL out of class, man. We take the CL out of class. I'll let you do the math. All right, Dorothea, that's it for this time. We are going to record another episode right now. What? (laughs) No, it's true. 
for two weeks. I don't from believe now. you. And since I'm participating, guess what? Hey, <laughs> <laughs> now. Hey, now. <laughs> All right, we'll see you guys next time. Bye.